0: Welcome to the ACOFPDO.FM podcast, Women in Leadership Series, a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians.
1: Hello, and welcome to the ACOFP podcast, DO.FM, and the final podcast of the Women in Leadership Series. I'm Katie Hawks, the Vice President of the National Student Executive Board.
0: And I'm Ashley Beckham, the parliamentarian for the National Student Executive Board. Today, we're so excited to be talking with Dr. Nicole Bixler. In addition to serving as the current ACFP president, she practices at immediate MedCare and Family Doctors of Spring Hill in Florida, where she focuses on the geriatric population, providing both outpatient and inpatient services.
1: Dr. Bixler serves on the Florida Prostate Cancer Advisory Council and holds an appointment of clinical associate professor at the Kieran Patel College of Osteopathic Medicine at Nova Southeastern University. She has been a preceptor for rural family medicine since 2010 and serves as a core teaching faculty for the HCA Oak Hill Family Medicine Residency. Dr. Bixler is proud to be a full-time working physician and a mother of three girls. She hopes to be an inspiration to young women in the profession. Today, we will learn about the history of women in osteopathic medicine and her role as ACOP president. Thank you for being here with us today, Dr. Bixler.
2: Thank you for having me. I appreciate that uh, wonderful introduction, Ashley and Katie.
1: So to start out, our listeners kind of want to know a little bit about the basic history of women in
2: osteopathic medicine. So the women in osteopathic medicine certainly goes back over 100 years now at this point. Uh, We were very fortunate that Andrew Taylor Still, MD at the time, opened the American School of Osteopathy in 1892. And when he did so, he decided that he was going to admit women into that first class. And in that first class, actually, six out of 21 of those members were women. This was rather groundbreaking because that just certainly was not uh, the way of the time. He also, in addition to admitting women into the class, he also hired other women to actually be faculty to teach those women. So having women teach women, which I think was also a very novel approach and osteopathic medicine, since almost all teachers, in fact, all teachers were, in the allopathic side, male male teachers. By 1900, there were over 7,000 total female physicians in America, meaning MDs and DOs, and 35% of those of the practicing DOs were women. So there was a pretty substantial amount in the early 1900s. Then we know a lot of other historical events took place, you know, between 1900 and in World War II and there was trajectory of a lot of women being able to participate. We certainly achieved the women's right to vote in 1920. A lot of things that were really looking up for women overall as professionals. But with that also was sort of this dichotomy that once there was these traditional women's schools weren't needed so much anymore because now there was such a co-ed population at our other medical schools. And so what happened was a lot of the traditional women's schools started to close. And then actually what we saw was a decrease in physicians between like the 1930s and 1950s. And a lot of that also during our, our times of World War certainly had a lot of effect on that. After World War II, only 2% of medical students were women. And that was both DO and MD. So really you could see how we started off small and women as a whole, both osteopathic and allopathic, came to rise and then came back down. And really since 1950 up until the early uh, like 2000s, 10 or so, it has been that upward climb again. And it's very exciting that now, I mean, it's like a 50-50 split across the board. You as students don't know of it being any different than being that you are equal counterparts with your males. I started in medical school in the early 2000s. It was not quite at that level. We were about 40-60 at that time. So it really is exciting that I look at is not just osteopathic medicine, but really just women in medicine overall, whether it's osteopathic or allopathic that really have just really come to the point where I think we are equal in numbers and that's really fantastic. Yes, we're very fortunate to be in this place where, you know, in our classes, it's 50-50,
1: like you said, we don't know anything different. And that was all kind of started with, you know, A.D. still on osteopathy, but that's really great to hear. Why do you think he was so open to having women, you know, that early on when, it wasn't the norm, you know, in the 1800s, you really didn't, you know, get the suffragette movement until the
2: 1920s, like you said, you know, if he faced any barriers with that, or why was he so open to that? A lot of it, obviously, it would have been great if any of us ever had the chance to actually meet A.T. still, but since we didn't, obviously, historically, what we know is first and foremost, he was brought up by a very strong woman, his own mother, in fact, you know, yeah. raised nine children and uh, tended to the farm when her husband wasn't there. And it's been noted that he himself even said that he thought his mom could do anything that his cat, dad could do, if not better. So he, he was kind of brought up with that notion that women were not inferior, they were equal. So I think that was probably a really good strong footing for him. We also know he had experiences with the death of his first wife and, and personal experiences that really made him search out other ways to treat people, which is basically the birth of osteopathy. And I think those things really um, made him realize that when you talk about the touch that we do as osteopathic physicians, that there's nobody better at that than women, the gentleness of our touch, which he recognized at that time and termed it as the feminine touch. He thought this made women natural healers. And I think that's why he just opened up the doors to osteopathy from the start, because that was his goal was to really do something different than what the allopathic physicians were doing. Awesome. So you kind of talked about
1: how, you know, in your day, it was more 40-60 and now it's more 50-50. Did you experience any barriers as a female in osteopathic medicine and in medicine in general, um, while it was
2: still a little bit uneven? So, you know, when I, when I think about that, I think my barriers probably pale in comparison to many of my Role models and many other uh, females that were practicing years before me. And I think really, I can't say that there's been a, a drastic barrier, but I do think there has certainly still been a lot of what I kind of term those like micro barriers or microaggressions, so to speak, of things that maybe not. Treated exactly the same as our male counterparts. I think some of it has been from patients as much as it's been from fellow colleagues or preceptors or or staff or anything else. You know, things such as, for example, I very vividly remember when I was a third and fourth year medical student on clinical rotations. Uh, there were times where I was the only female, and it was assumed by either the nursing staff sometimes, or the patients that I was a social worker, or I was a case manager, or I was a nursing student, but I couldn't have been one of the medical students. And it was a little shocking to me because I was sort of like, it's not that odd to have female medical students, but that still that perception was still there. Uh, Likewise, still having people refer to you as sweetie or by your first name without ever having met me before. It still happens today. My very first initial encounter with a patient and they'll look at my name badge and just take it upon themselves to call me by my first name, which I'm not absolutely opposed to, but I'd like to get to know you first. And I think it does sort of set up an imbalance in that boundaries and respect because I don't see that happen to my male counterparts. They're They're usually always referred to as doctor. So and so. So I think there's been some of those things that are still barriers. I think those still exist re- regardless if we're a 50 50. And I, I'm just really glad that those things are are getting better. And I think in today's day and age, a lot of these things are being brought to the forefront under many other aspects than just about medicine, but just as our society as a whole. So yes, I think I'm. Pre- I think I've been pretty lucky. I haven't had anything that's been drastically has been in my way where I haven't been able to do what I wanted to do because I was a woman.
1: So that's, no, that's great to hear. And I think a medical community as a whole, we're very obviously open to having, you know, that diversity um, in our profession. It's more so I think the patients and just the general public are still getting a little bit used to it. I'm still, you know, I sometimes get addressed as the nurse or am I in nursing school, which is fine. I obviously very respect nurses, but, you know, I wear a badge that says medical student on it for that reason, that, they, that way they're at least aware of, of where I'm coming from. But that's great to hear. So what
2: female leaders do you
1: look up to? You kind of talked about that a little bit when you were just speaking.
2: Yeah, so you know, there's probably like too many to count really when you think about there's been so many people I've had such great experiences, but if you really had to pin me down, first and foremost, Carol Henwood, a DO, past president of ACFP, certainly has been a role model and someone I've looked up to as a female leader. I've known her since I was just out of medical school and residency in Pennsylvania, and I've been a part of her board and just really, I, I think she just epitomizes leadership with style, grace, and, you know, certainly is not afraid to wear a heart on her sleeve. And I think that is just something I've always really admired about her and she gets the job done. And so she she's definitely a role model and someone I look up to. Barbara Ross Lee, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention her. I don't know Dr. Lee so well personally, but she's just such an icon in our profession. I mean, it just it, it would be remiss if I didn't mention her. From the internal medicine side, Karen Nichols, you know, not a family physician, but a fantastic, phenomenal osteopathic leader, someone who I've also known for a long time. Someone who I've been very touched has reached out to me in numerous times during my leadership journey and has said, if you ever need anything, don't hesitate to reach out, sends me a little email every now and then, even now, as I'm president saying, just checking in, how are things going? So that, that really means a lot. And Dixie took Rollins. I I had the opportunity to interview her, myself in a podcast and uh, another, just so many great people. So I think we do have some great role models out there in our medical profession and particularly in the osteopathic profession. And then just in general, you know, not all of our role models or, or inspirations come necessarily just from osteopathic medicine. I did have one allopathic physician, Dr. Beth Dupree, when I was a third year medical student who I, she was a breast surgeon I had no, no intention of ever doing breast surgery, but what struck me most was from the very first day I was at her office, she hugged every single patient coming in and coming out. And it's something I adopted early on. And I still do. Unfortunately, COVID has kind of stopped that a little bit, but I've always admired her for that. And and that's been amazing. And right now, if you had to pin me down today, January 27th of 2021, Kamala Harris, I mean, come on. So there you go. I mean, I'm just, I'm, it's just such an awesome, amazing time for women leaders to have someone in such a highly esteemed position in our, um,
0: in our government.
2: And I am just thrilled because like, I hope now that means that my daughters will not think, you know, 30, 40 years from now that that's like such a big deal because it will have happened numerous times between now and then. Yes. So. no, it's, it's at a great boy. place, I think, to be
1: um, having yeah. women in leadership. It's an exciting time for sure. Absolutely. So you kind of talked about Dr. Henwood. She's one of the ACP presidents. There's only been four female ACFP presidents in the history of ACFP. How does it feel being the fourth female president for ACFP?
2: Well, it certainly is an incredible honor. I am I sometimes can't even imagine it myself when I think about in 70 years that prior to me, Mary Burnett, Jan Zarin, and Carol Henwood were the only female presidents. And really even more interesting than that was we had Mary Burnett so long ago and then there was such a stretch. And then I've been in working with ACFP doing my service while Dr. Zirin and Dr. Henwood were presidents. It's amazing. My goal, my hope is that certainly I don't ever want it to be focused on my gender. I'm hoping we get to that point where it's not such a big deal that I'm a female president. I realize the historical significance of it, but I hope when people look back on what hopefully are all successes over this uh, remainder of my presidency, That it's about what we did as an entire board and it wasn't about me just being the fourth female president, but I do realize just what that means for other female leaders and, and it's just really exciting to have that responsibility and that respect and the encouragement from so many other people to think that I could do this job. So I feel pretty lucky.
1: Yeah, we're glad to have you for sure, and I know you've been involved in Board of Governors before this, so I was just kind of curious, what piqued your interest in ACFP leadership? How did you first get involved, you know,
2: in medical school or on the
1: national level?
2: So I did start uh, with my chapter at PCOM as a student. I wasn't a leader, I was just a participant. I kind of knew I always wanted to do family medicine, pediatrics for a brief time, but then came right back to family medicine. And it probably really wasn't until I became a resident. I was very fortunate. I had a phenomenal program director who really encouraged our involvement in organizational medicine. And I had some other really other great mentors who really just kind of took me under their wing from the beginning. Uh, those would be Dr. Jeffrey Lindenbaum and Dr. Robert Danoff when I was in Pennsylvania. And so as a second year resident, I started serving as our strongest link representative to the ACOFP, which we don't have those anymore, but we had at the time. And what that was, was I was sort of the conduit between ACFP and my program to give them information of what ACFP was up to and what was going on and things like that. And that was my first actual national role, I would say with ACLP. And from there, it just kind of took off. And it was almost like there was no turning back. <laughs> as chief resident, I continued to be active, and as soon as I finished residency, I was on the Young Physicians Committee and Membership Committee, and then just started participating with, with other committees like our Committee on Education Evaluation, and it just, before you know it, you blink, and it's like, whoa, where did you go? And uh, But I really, I, I, I have to say that my mentors, as I mentioned, Dr. Lindemann, Dr. Danoff, and then Dr. Jeffrey Grove, who, once I moved to Florida 13 years ago, has been truly instrumental in allowing my participation in ACOFP. And I say that because he's my employer as well, and just really giving me lots of insight. And there's been so many others. There's just way too many other people to mention, but I, I've enjoyed my 15 plus years serving with the ACOFP. I would do it all again tomorrow if I was back in your spot, so...
1: Yeah, ACFP has a wonderful way of sucking you in and keeping you glued and integrated in, you know, for the long term. And um, I'm sure I speak for Ashley and myself that we're both really grateful to be involved at the national level to Mm -hmm. um, serve our students represent ACFP.
0: Well, Katie asked a lot of great questions. I have a couple more. What's the most rewarding part of serving in leadership?
2: So that answer has never changed for me. Anybody who's ever asked me, I really throughout my entire part of being a leader have always still really kept in touch with my teaching side as well by teaching students and residents, both formally as a family medicine preceptor and now as a a core teaching faculty for residency program. But I also feel like my role in ACFP has allowed me to teach and mentor students and residents for 15 years. Every national convention, every OMED, every sideline meeting, everything where you get a chance to talk to a student or resident, about family medicine and about leadership is is truly what inspires me to keep doing it. I could, well, first of all, I really like to talk in case you didn't notice, but I would much rather be in a room with 150 students and talking to them than sitting at the board table. Part of our leadership role is we obviously do those things, but I think the, the rewarding part is certainly all the successes for the greater organization and the advocacy for our patients, but it really is knowing that we get to Inspire and teach and role model to those below us. I have one very particular instance that just I would be remiss if I didn't mention it. So, when I was a chief resident at Frankfurt Hospitals in Philadelphia, we had a program called the Scholars Program. And what it was was our local schools, our local high schools, we had about 10 high schools. They could nominate two seniors and they would come to the Scholars Program and they would come one Wednesday every month. And what we would do is we would introduce them to different facets of medicine. And obviously we're a very osteopathic based hospital. So much of it was very osteopathic driven. I ran that program with Dr. Danoff as a chief resident. And I stayed on a year later as an attending and helped run that program. And I had this young gentleman in that program and I'll never forget him. he He was so charismatic. He was so fun and exciting, but he's an 18 year old kid. And so you never really know, like, are they really going to go through college and med school and get to that point? Well, fast forward many years later, and I randomly get this email and I open it up. And sure enough, he emailed me the day after he graduated osteopathic medical school. And he's very simply said, you are the reason I went to DO school and I am a doctor today. And I, I think that has just stayed with me. And so if you, um, ever get that opportunity to inspire someone, whether it be go to med school or go into family medicine, that's what makes all that we do worth it. So.
0: I love that full circle, him coming back and reaching out to you. So would you say that's your favorite part about being part of the ACOFP is being able to teach or are there other aspects too?
2: So I think when I look at the overall ACOFP and it may sound very cliche, but it is truly a family. I mean, there is no doubt about it. Myself and now even my family have both professionally and literally grown up with the ACOP for 15 years. My daughter actually thinks some of the board members are truly like her aunts and uncles and grandparents because (laughs) she's been a part of this board since she was one. But it is such a sense of home whenever I'm around my osteopathic family medicine colleagues. And it doesn't matter if we haven't seen someone for like a year. It's like the minute you get to see them, it's as if time has never lapsed. You, you just pick up right where you were before. And I think that's very unique about our profession. I think it's unique about family medicine. I've had the opportunity to be at many different types of family medicine, organizational meetings, both allopathic and osteopathic. And I never get that same feeling the way I do when at one of our ACFP meetings. So I think besides all the other aspects of the leadership stuff
0: and the teaching, it really is just that sense of family. Oh, that's lovely as far as like the future of family practice, do you see any barriers currently or that are gonna, that are kind of on the horizon that we'll face as a group as osteopathic family physicians?
2: Well, I think there's, oh, we could probably have an hour discussion just on that alone, but as as, (laughs) as far as barriers, whether it be for females or just osteopathic physicians as a whole or just family physicians as a whole, I think we're in the biggest barrier we've ever seen. I think COVID-19 has just really, truly dealt us something we were not ready for. And I think it's true osteopathic family physicians like myself who like to hug and touch their patients. This has been the roughest year as a physician. This is not what I went into medicine for. I did not go into medicine to talk to people on computer screens or not be able to, you know, communicate in by Touch and so I think that's a huge barrier, and I'm not sure when we're going to get back to getting to our full level of comfort of being able to do that. Who knows? I mean, hopefully we will get there. So I think that's in of itself, but that has lent other avenues of where there could be some barriers. I think overall. And this is where a lot of the advocacy efforts of ACFP come into play is the value of family medicine overall, I think is one of the biggest barriers. And that doesn't matter if you're male, female, osteopath or allopathic. It's making insurers, patients, the public aware of just how necessary and valuable and experienced and smart and all of those, any other of those good adjectives that family medicine is, because I truly believe our healthcare system cannot survive with specialists alone. Without a good sound basis of family medicine, we really miss the boat. And so I think that's one of the things that's a perpetual barrier is just really getting that. I feel good about it though. I feel like there has been some progress already. I, I work in a model that sort of lends itself to what's called value-based care, which very much relies on strong primary physician and so I get the opportunity every day to practice that and I'm fortunate in that not many of my colleagues get to do that and sometimes that can lead to some burnout I think and I think that's our other biggest barrier is just as physicians as a whole is really keeping in mind why we all went into medicine and taking care of ourselves while we try to take care of our patients because that we have seen that time and time again how that has affected many of our colleagues.
0: On that note, how do you maintain a work-life balance as a working mother of three?
2: So I can talk the talk, but I don't know if I always walk it really well. No, I'm just, I try really hard and I, I, do, I do a good job. I think all I try to ever tell anybody, especially when I counsel, discuss, talk to other females, is you only can do the best you can do first and foremost. And at the end of the day, you have to, first of all, you still have to love what you do. And I still, there's not a day I get up that I don't want to go to work. And I still know that I am being the best mom I could possibly be. And sometimes that's maybe in a little bit different role than maybe other women's roles are as a non-physician mom who works like we I do or you will do possibly. But it may be different, but it's still just as good. And there's still just as much love and support and all those other things. I think for me to personally maintain my work-life balance, it absolutely has depended upon having my support structure. One, first and foremost, is my husband, who's also a family medicine physician. We work together in the same practice. We've been very fortunate. That does provide us a lot of latitude with some scheduling of okay, how many patients do you have left this afternoon? All right, good. You'll be done by then. You go get the kids. All right, great. I'll stay. And uh, so we we're lucky in that sense. I, I do, I do know that we are lucky there, but I've also taken every opportunity I possibly can to incorporate my family in my leadership positions for anybody who knows me. They usually know my, my family, particularly my, my youngest daughter who had like, I mentioned before has kind of grown up with this board I feel like if you get me you get them that were like a package deal and uh, there's been times where we've had to like make some adjustments uh, you know for for instance sometimes you know timing of meetings is you know for other people who aren't trying to put down a two-year-old at 7 30 at night having a, a, a meeting is a good time well not not for me it's not and I, for a long period of time I was the only one on the board with children that age so we, we kind of had to sometimes be cognizant of making some changes so that I could still do my thing of giving Lily a bath and getting her story read to her and getting her down to bed, but then still being able to get to my my meeting. And so I think you kind of find ways to do some of those things, but I'm not going to say that there hasn't been some hard days and some struggles. I'd be lying if I said I, I vividly remember my daughter swims and I missed her very first swimming because I was in Phoenix at a future leaders meeting for ACFP and our board meeting, which... I don't regret that part. That's my role, my job, that's the way to do. But I was kind of sad that I missed it. She didn't really care, quite honestly. I think that's part of what women do is we beat ourselves up so much thinking that everyone else cares as much as we do. And I think sometimes they do, but I think we put so much pressure on ourselves to try to be perfect in every domain. And it's not possible. Something's got to give at times. And so I, I am trying every day to keep that in mind and to know that some things you just have to give. And I think that, you know, I've gotten better at it over these last couple years. And I think if the only thing that probably takes a little bit of a backseat is probably myself at times and not necessarily in how I take care of myself but I always tell people you know they're like oh what's your hobbies what do you love to do and I'm like does organizational medicine count as a hobby because that's pretty much where I spend most of my other free time if it's not my job my kids my family then it's it's been ACFP which again I enjoy and I love so there will come a day when that won't be as prevalent and um i maybe get to enjoy some other things. So, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that everybody has to look at to themselves. And I also have counseled, I've had some other women have come to me who seem like they've been struggling a very dear friend just recently uh, in this last year and very heartfelt said that if that's not what's right for you, that's not what's right for you. Your, your expectations shouldn't be what everybody else expects of you. It's what you have to do for yourself. And so, um, You know, I think that's the important thing. You have to do what feels right to you at the right time.
0: That is some good advice. Well, Dr. Bixler, we just wanted to say thank you for taking time to share your invaluable experience as a female leader in osteopathic family medicine. It's been an absolute pleasure.
2: Thank you guys so much. This is fun. I've been on the other end interviewing, but not necessarily being the one interviewed. So this was this was nice. I had a lot of fun. Thank you.
0: Yes. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Be sure to check for future episodes of the DO.FM podcast. The ACOFP DO.FM podcast women in leadership series is a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. To learn more about ACOFP, please visit www.acofp.org. Interested in learning more about the ACOFP Education and Research Foundation's initiatives and ways you can support the future of the osteopathic profession? Visit www.acofpfoundation.org or email foundation at acofp.org.